But I love how Jesus' ministry gets going. I love the baptism story. It's just this moment of um, just one extreme spiritual high, I think. It's the kind of encounter moment that if you're anything like me and you grew up in maybe uh, what you might call the charismatic uh, movement, uh, the part of the church that uh, really values and presses in and pursues the work of the Holy Spirit, that you're just begging, you've begged God probably for years like I have for an experience like this one, an experience where the Holy Spirit descends upon you as Jesus has, you know, he's, he's there uh, getting baptised and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and it's visible, the form of a dove. He has an experience of the Holy Spirit and, and as if that wasn't enough, alongside it, he, he hears the voice of God himself, his father saying, this is my son. With him, I'm well pleased. Talk about a spiritual high. Talk about the kind of moment that you or I would want to experience in our lives to set us going on our spiritual journey. This, this is the stuff we expect in the Bible. The good stuff, the encounter. It's like Moses in Exodus 3, a burning bush after which his life was never the same. It's like Abraham before God in Genesis 12. The beginning of something. This is how it should be. This is how church should be, isn't it? Yes. It's how we expect things to, be get, to, to get going. It's, it's, it's what we would hope for in our own lives in lots of ways. It's not surprising that this moment for Jesus would kickstart his own journey of public ministry. And yet, what comes next after this moment for Jesus, and if we're honest for us as we read through the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, is remarkably surprising. It takes a bit of a left turn pretty quickly. After the genealogies in uh, Luke's Gospel, we get straight into the second reading, which Josie read for us, the story of Jesus in the wilderness. And if we're honest, this isn't exactly what we had in mind we imagined that Jesus would go from strength, spiritual high point to spiritual high point, that he'd stay on the mountaintop for a little bit longer and not have to descend into the deep valley of the wilderness experience. And yet, the wilderness, wilderness experience about, of, for Jesus, which is what I want to talk about this morning, is as much a key part of his preparation for the life and calling that God the Father has for him as the mountaintop experience. They're both parts of the same whole. They're both key moments for preparation, of preparation for him. And when we look through the story of the Bible, we see that actually this is the case not just for Jesus, this is the case for many, if not all, of those people who God would use powerfully. I talked about Abraham. He experiences God in Genesis 12 and he has his wilderness. He and Sarah, a wilderness of waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled in the shape of Isaac. Talked about Moses experiences God and then has to wait. He has to wait and wait and wait. And even when he and the Israelites are delivered from slavery, they too have to wait. They have to wait and they wander around in the wilderness. Somebody said it's one thing getting Israel out of Egypt. It's another thing getting Egypt out of Israel. 
We wander around in the wilderness. It's not just those folks. It's contemporary saints as well, or almost contemporary saints. I've read in John Wesley's journals a little while ago. It was brought to my mind as I was preparing this. Some of you have heard of John Wesley. Any, anyone heard of Wesley? Yeah, he was a couple of people just willing to admit they've heard of Wesley. Other people are like, no, I'm too cool. I've, I've not heard of Wesley. Who's Wesley? John Wesley, uh, an incredible preacher, missionary, uh, who began the Wesleyan or the Methodist movement. And he, he as a young, sort of excitable young uh, Christian, full of vigour, full of excitement, he'd had his sort of encounter with God, he'd been ordained, he'd been to university, he'd done the whole thing and he was ready. And he set out on a mission trip to Georgia. This is back in the good old days when America wasn't a separate nation, just a colony at this point of this great United Kingdom. Just trying to get at you Americans there. And he went on a missionary trip to, uh, to Georgia, full of confidence. On the boat over uh, to Georgia, he was shocked as the whole world, almost all of the people on the boat were by the fierceness of the storms. And they felt that they were going to lose their lives. Wesley was overcome with fear. He was overcome with fear. He was overcome with something else as well. And that was the fact that there were a group of people on the boat who were not afraid to die. And that group were a group of Germans, a group of Moravians who were sitting quietly in a circle praying, completely absent of all fear. This shook Wesley. And it wasn't the only thing that shook him. When he got to America, he was shaken as well because his ministry was an utter failure. Not only that, but he tried to start a relationship uh, with a young woman, Sophie Hopke, and that failed as well. And he left America, and actually, he left America with uh, Sophie Hopke's now husband uh, pursuing a legal action against him, which is impressive, I think. (laughs) Wesley left America in crisis, and he ran away in failure. He said this, I think we have this on the screen. I went to America to convert the Indians. This is before the days of Native Americans, so forgive the lack of PC there. But oh, who shall convert me? Who? What is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. Wesley comes to a moment of crisis. In that moment, he enters into a wilderness. He recognises he does not have what it takes to get where he wants to go, where he needs to go. He cries out to God, and for him it's a relatively short period. That was January the 24th, 1738. On May the 24th, just a few months later, this is what we read. In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Some of you are like, oh man, I've been to many Christian meetings unwillingly. Where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given to me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley experiences his wilderness and on the other side of his wilderness is a deeper conviction, a deeper readiness. And God used that man powerfully amongst others to bring about great change in this nation. It's good enough for Abraham. It's good enough for Sarah. It's good enough for Moses. Good enough for Jesus and Wesley. You and I are going to face the wilderness. 
Maybe not just once, maybe a few times, but we will experience what it's like to be in the wilderness. We will, as the marathon runners say, hit the wall at some point. And actually, that isn't a sign it's going wrong. That may be a sign that it's going right. And unless we're ready for it, unless we've named it, unless we appreciate that that's part of the spiritual life, we will be shocked by it and we might well tap out and give up. There are things which God does in the wilderness for us that we just don't want to, we don't want to miss out on. And what we read actually in chapter four, I think it's fascinating. If you open your Bibles, if you don't have them open already, chapter four, verse one, it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, as you would expect after a spiritual high like the one he's just had, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What on earth is going on there? So the first thing we see is clear and we need to see is that the Holy Spirit's aim is to send Jesus into the wilderness. I think actually, if I remember rightly, the Greek there is the same word. I think it's ekbalo. It's the same word that's used to describe the deliverance of demonic powers from people in Luke's gospel. Literally, Jesus is cast out by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is like a violent force the Holy Spirit has in Jesus' life to take him into that place. He's just not going to be ready unless he's been in that place. Into the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit there. We too will be led by the Spirit at some point into that place. And the reason is that the spiritual life is a journey. And there are different stages on that journey. And I put together this fetching slide. To illustrate the stages on the spirit, I actually stole this completely from Pete Scazzera, his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which I'd really encourage you to get hold of. I just want to walk through this uh, quickly for us, because I think it illustrates this idea that there are stages of faith that we each pass through. Now, I don't want to say that this is completely linear or circular, that we just go around this once. Actually, I think that sometimes we can be in a number of these stages at the same time. Sometimes we flip round. Maybe we go a bit back. And come, but you know, it illustrates the point. And the first stage, stage one, is the life-changing awareness of God. I think Jesus has this, uh, doesn't he, in the baptism story. You and I have probably had this at some level. Maybe in worship. Maybe you had one before. I mean, I just thought that time of worship was beautiful. Sense of God's presence with us. And we have that at some point on our journey. We have a life-changing awareness of God. We meet with God. God shows up and, and things look different afterward. For every one of us, that's different. Sometimes it's a growing awareness. It happens over many days, many weeks, months, or even years. Sometimes it's in a moment, like a collision God's life and our life meet and nothing is the same. And then we move into stage two, which is discipleship, which just means learning. And it's a stage of uh, where we begin to, um, Ronald Rollheiser talks about the stage of getting our lives together. We begin to pull some pieces together and we say, oh, well, hang on, this Christian life, I need to figure out what it means. I'll start going to church. I'll get involved in Christian community. Maybe I'll start praying and figuring out what that means. I might start uh, some of these spiritual disciplines, you know, uh, I might read the Bible regularly. Uh, I might get together with other Christians. It's, that's the next stage of the journey. And then we move into stage three, which is active life of service, where we begin to think, hang on, I'm, I've got something to bring as well. Isn't it amazing? God's given me some gifts. I'm going to start sharing those gifts with other people. 
I'll start getting involved in some of the ministries in the church. I'll start seeing, I'll develop a bigger picture of my life. God actually has a blessing, a gift he's put in me for the world. I'm going to start serving outside of the church as well. I want to become a part of building uh, the world, the kingdom that God is in the process of building. We see our, our journey uh, stage three as having to do a component of service, doing stuff for God. These stages are all great things. This is all good stuff. But there does come a point, as Schizera says, and I, I agree with him, which he, there comes a point where we, we are going to hit the wall. All the good stuff we've been doing, we'll come, to the, we'll come to the end of it and we'll see that there's got to be more. There must be more. We hit the wall at some point. And the wall, which I think is an image taken from the Marathon Runners Bible, um, is the wilderness. It's the same thing. We, we, we get to this point where we reach the end, I think, of ourselves. And it can happen for a whole host of different reasons for different people. You may have experienced the wall already in your life. You may have experienced what it's like to be in the wilderness. For you, it might have come about through the end of a relationship. Maybe through uh, the death of a loved one. Maybe through some key transition in your life. Maybe you moved house. And and some of the things that held you together, that stabilized you, were taken from you. Maybe you moved church. And the spiritual environment you've been in for a long period of time was taken away. And that, that brought about grief in you. And what used to connect you, this is the key thing about the wilderness, what used to work to connect you with God doesn't work in the same way it did. What used to get you into God's presence is, you know, you read the Bible at times, it's like dust. You're like, I, I think I used to hear God speak to me when I read this book, but it doesn't work maybe in the same way it did. Or, or maybe, you, you know, your, your favorite Bethel album, whatever it is, just doesn't work in the same way. You're being called deeper into a deeper communion with God. And along with the wall, we have a journey inward. A journey into God. We have to go deeper. If we're going to survive, if you're going to survive in the wilderness, you've got to dig deep. Because the water's buried deep beneath the surface. And that's the journey that God orchestrates. It's a journey that, that he is in charge of. Richard Raw, who writes on some of these sorts of things, said, the wilderness isn't a place where God isn't. It's a place where all you have is God. It's the other stuff which goes away. And you're left face to face with just you and God. And that is an uncomfortable place to be. This journey takes us inward. It takes us into God. And we have to go deeper. It's, by the way, it's an active process. I don't mean to say that we just tap out here and we just leave it all up to God. No, we ourselves are being called to grow in that place. But it is painful and it is difficult. After the wall, after the wilderness comes a journey outward. Again, we, we can become engaged in some of the things we did before. Discipleship, teaching others, service, ministry. And it's not like we step out of those things in through the wall either but the point is the foundation is shifted any sense of striving is removed and we're able to give from a place of deep peace and encounter with God I think this is any I I think this is the really transformational point it's here that 
We say the same stuff we would have said before and it just has a, a weight to it. Yeah, have you ever been with somebody who's been through the war, who, who's been journeying with Jesus for a period of time and you sit with them and it's not about what they say. It's not about what they do or how they do it, but there is just an intensity, a weight, a purity to their being that rubs off on you. And you go away thinking, I don't know what it was. I know they didn't say anything cool or impressive, but they were just so deeply at peace with who they were in God. That is what is on the other side of the wall for us. And it, the journey outward is from a place of being grounded. And the final stage is, uh, Schizero talks about being transformed into love. We continue our journey into God. And he sends people, events, and circumstances into our life which continue to shape us. Now look, as I said, this isn't linear. It's not one after the other. If only it were this easy. Our lives are so messy. Our lives are up and down and round and round. And just like Israel, we wander around in circles in the wilderness for quite a long time. We might take a step out and then back in. What I want to name this morning is that this is part of the Christian walk. If you are experiencing this, if you have experienced this, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. There are dry times, there are difficult times in our journey with God that we have because we've done silly things. Maybe we're stuck in some kind of cycle of disobedience and so we can't hear heaven like we used to. That isn't necessarily the wilderness. That might just be something we need to figure out. Maybe we need to go and speak to someone, confess our sin with someone else. But actually Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's being obedient to the Father and it's the Spirit of God that leads him here. I want to close with just asking one question and hopefully beginning to propose some answers. And here's the question. What can we learn in the wilderness? I want to suggest three things. Rude not to. Three things. They do hopefully come out of the text. Verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted. The word there equally means tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them he was hungry. Love that line. Just a bit of humour there. I just think Luke's saying, little wink there. He was hungry. 40 days. Of Of course he was hungry, Luke. I know you're a doctor. But that's just obvious. He was hungry. The devil said to him, now I don't know if you, what, what, I don't know what you're like when you're hungry. A friend of mine talked about this, this concept, hangry. You're hungry and you're angry and it's just all one thing. And you just, everything, you're just angry, hangry. So Jesus is hangry here. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. But, and and it's missing, but in the original text, Jesus is drawing him from Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live on bread alone, but, comes the next bit, on every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father. What we have here is the first test. And what is being tested is Jesus' identity. In fact, specifically, the very thing, the very word that the Father has just spoken over him at his baptism is being put to the test. If, Satan says, if you are the son of God, make these stones into a lump of bread. You're hungry after all. 
A reference here is being made to Israel's journey through the wilderness, where they got out of uh, slavery and into the wilderness. And the first thing Moses is told to do is make us some food. We're hungry. Back there in the back there in Egypt, we were fed. Yeah, we had to make pyramids out of bricks and straw, but still we were fed, and the food was good, wasn't it? It was great food back there in Egypt. And they complain, and and rather than uh, trying to create out of him out of his own, Moses goes and he says, "Look, God, what are you going to do?" And God provides manna for them in the wilderness. Jesus, his very identity, the very thing God has affirmed, has been tested. Here. If you are the Son of God, prove it. The first thing we're to learn in the wilderness is that we have nothing to prove. We have nothing to prove. The first thing we learn in the wilderness is that we have nothing to prove. You know, you cannot live by bread alone. You cannot live on the affirmation of others. You can't live on your ability to produce stuff. You can't live on the strength of your performance. Trust me, I've tried. The only food which is going to sustain a human life, the only food which was ever intended to sustain a human life is the word of the Lord. What God says about you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I'm well pleased. Until you've heard that, and it's moved from your head, down into your marrow, into your bones, you will be striving and looking for affirmation in all the wrong places. And you might find that through uh, academic performance, You might find that through a series of relationships which never fulfill. You might find that through workaholism. That's the acceptable one. Overproductivity, an addiction to making stuff happen. You can find that in any number of different places, but it won't satisfy. You'll, You'll end up burned out. We have to find this in the word of God over us. Every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father, we need to know we've got nothing to prove. And that's what we learn in the wilderness. All the other voices are stilled and we're drawn back to the one voice that matters. It's a time of purification. The second thing we learn in the wilderness is that we don't have to be in control of our lives. Let's read. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. All the kingdoms of the world. All the kingdoms. If the first temptation is is about uh, production or performance, if it's about proving the self, 
before other people and before God. The second one is actually about power. Jesus taken up to a high place. Maybe this is the, the summit, the apex of Herod's palace. Or maybe it's a mountain where God met with Moses. Or maybe it's some other place. We don't know where it is, but it's a high place. And from this place, Jesus can see everything. He can see, he can see all the kings of this world. Of this world. And what uh, Satan does in this moment is to offer Jesus an empire. Jesus, come and have an empire. You can have any empire. You can have the greatest empire. Someone with your gifts. Someone with your talents. Someone with the call on their life that you have, Jesus, could build something pretty spectacular. You and me, if we go into business, have you thought the name you could build? They'd be talking about you. Seeks to... to to pervert Jesus' call, to offer him the, a pact of power. He says, Jesus, take control of your destiny. Take control right now of your ministry. You need to be in control. You don't know where this journey is going to go otherwise. Heck, you wouldn't want it to go to the cross, would you? And in this moment, Jesus, he refuses uh, the decision, the, the, the uh, offer of an empire, because Jesus hasn't come to build an empire. He hasn't come to build his name. In fact, we read in Philippians 2 that he's given up his rights and his privileges for the, the name, which was his name before all of the names were named. He's given it up. He's not come to build an empire. He's come to build, to establish God's kingdom, to see God's name honoured above all other names. We too will be tempted to build our own name, to build our own empire. Now this, can I tell you, this is particularly toxic and particularly true in Christian ministry. It is so subtle and it is so powerful. It is like an undercurrent which goes beneath so much Western Christian spirituality, this desire to do stuff in order to build a brand, to build a name. I know that because I've battled with it for a long time. I wouldn't say I was free of it by any means. However, I talked last week about this wilderness journey of having, the, having our twins and just that brutal but wonderful experience, which I would not, if they're ever listening to this in the future, trade for anything. But it was a very hard time for us and it got me way beyond where I was comfortable and capable. And in that time, I felt stretched. I felt... Uh, alone, I felt dry, I felt uh, broken, honestly. I tell you this, the one thing that shifted, the one thing that I know shifted after that period, which God willing will continue to shift, was my ambition. I finished that time, I finished that season far less bothered, far less ambitious than I was before. Oh, that God would continue that work in me. And that he'd do it in you as well. We're not in control of our lives. Listen to this. It's not about our lives. If your life is about your life, it'll never amount to very much. You know how small we are? How little our lives make a difference in one sense. Not invaluable, deeply valuable to God. We have to, we have to make our lives about something more than our lives. 
And it's in doing that, in giving our lives away, in giving control away to God that we find our lives make so much more difference. We find meaning, we find peace, we find joy when we give up the effort to build our own kingdom. Finally, we learn that we don't need to please other people. We don't need to make a spectacle, would be another way to put it. Jesus answered it, nope, not that bit. Verse nine, the devil led him to Jerusalem. So we were at the high point of some special place. Now we're in the high point of Israel's life, the political and religious center of Israel's uh, national life. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, the third test of Jesus' identity, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Quoting Psalm 91. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The news about him spread through the whole countryside. The final uh, temptation for Jesus, the final test, is the, the test to do something spectacular. It's connected with the other two, but the, the temptation here for Jesus is to make a visible sign of his anointing. To, to, to play, if you like, for the galleries, and there would have been galleries, many, many people watching. And if Jesus threw himself off and survived it, if a, a legion of angels came and caught him in midair with their, their wings, the cherubim and seraphim, or whichever ones would have been sent, just fluttering their wings as they brought him down to earth carefully in the middle of the temple. People would have worshipped. A kingdom without a cross being offered here to Jesus. All by building a name, all by pleasing other people, doing what people expected of him. And yet Jesus refuses because he's come not to please the crowd, but to perform for the audience of one. He's come for obedience, not to create a spectacle, but to please God. We so often look to others to name us. So often look to others to affirm us and describe us, to, to tell us we're doing okay. But there is a name, there is a voice which we need to hear first. There is a purpose for our lives which is to perform for his pleasure. And it's in doing that that we find our freedom. So what? Well, our response to this is to share a meal together. And I love that at the heart of uh, the Christian faith, one of the things which reminds us who we are is not uh, a moment of performance, it's a meal. And we come to this meal together with nothing to prove. We come to a meal, not a performance. And in this meal, we remember all that was done for us. We remember Jesus' obedience on our behalf. Uh, Jesus' uh, beautiful connection with the Father. Jesus, uh, who lived a perfect and sinless life so that we might be included in God's family. And what we do when we come to this table is we say, I, I, I'm trusting in you. I don't trust in my performance, my ability to make bread from stones. But I take this bread knowing that you have done everything required to fulfill righteousness. I stand in the circle of your blessing as I take this bread. 
We come to this meal, we come to this table, not needing to be in charge, not needing to be powerful, but by taking this bread and drinking this wine, we are empowered by the living God through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work as we take this meal. We're given not just bread and wine, but food for the journey, food for the Christian life. And so we can say as we come to this meal, I don't have to be in control. I don't even need to be powerful because him that lives in me is powerful and he will fulfill his purpose for me. And we come to this meal laying down our toxic need to please other people. And instead we say, Jesus, I long to please you. I long to please you. And I thank you that you're already pleased, that I'm included in your family. And because I trust in you, and because I take and eat of this bread and this wine, what the Father said of Jesus is also true of me, that I am your beloved son, your beloved daughter, in you, in me, you are well pleased.